Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting, like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6. Now faster and more powerful than ever before, so that you can get even more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop, with up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and a new 8th gen Intel Core processor. You can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by StarTalk All-Stars. In a world filled with fake news, flat earthers, and conspiracy theories, what's a thinking person like you supposed to do? Think like a skeptic, of course. On last week's episode of StarTalk All-Stars, neuroscientist Heather Berlin, PhD, and her comic co-host Ari Shafir investigate the importance of skeptical thinking with their guests, Cara Santamaria and Dr. Stephen Novella of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Remember, trust no one, question authority, and listen to StarTalk All-Stars wherever you listen to podcasts for the rigorous scientific thinking you crave. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio live from the theater of the real, it's Andy Greenwald! It's too real. What's up, brother? This theater's too real. I'm just uh, trying to vibe. First show back from Thanksgiving break. Thanksgiving, an historic, historically relevant, resonant holiday for me and Andy. Really? Yeah, because I feel like we used to just really just do our thing over Thanksgiving break in Philly. It's true. I connected the holiday. We're not alone in this, right? Yeah. But like the Friday night, mm-hmm. like get down, yeah. like all your homies are back in town and yeah. you go do some do some young people stuff. You're and really you're, suitably carved up. You car- like you have a reserve of, of stuffing. To be fair, I mean, sometimes people like it when we lift the curtain a little bit, right? Of our relationship. <laughs> I think we've done this bit before. I don't know if we have. I don't know if people understand that like yeah, in the I old think we, days. We actually did talk about like all the music we would listen to. Oh, I made like a Fishtown playlist, sure. whatever. It's more that like I used to cook Thanksgiving dinner at my home, my parents' home. And every year, you and another buddy of ours would roll in to pick me, scoop me up. Well, because like our ice friend Matt would eat at like 1 p.m. That's right. And then I would eat at like 6.30. I would eat at like 8. You would eat at like weirdly like slow... you were having a, a Madridista Thanksgiving at like 10 p.m. You're just... serving hors d'oeuvres. It's because it, I'm a slow cooker. And so Matt and I would show up. And we would sort of graze. <laughs> Ingratiate yourself with the family. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, sort of black bag me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Put a, put a hood over my head. It's, the 700 Club. It's different nowadays mm-hmm. in that... Um, we do not spend Thanksgiving together at all. <laughs> we stay far apart. Yeah. You, Chris, you were in another country. What was yeah, that like? Yeah, I went to London. You well, it's not a, I went to England. London's a city. Yeah. And I went to England. I went to London and Oxford. Uh, had a lovely time. Lovely time. Here's the thing about England is that when the sun does, quote unquote, come up. Uh-huh. And when is that? And 9, 9.30, it seems like. <laughs> and then basically stays the exact, it, it comes up and it looks like dusk. Yeah. And it stays that way until 4.30 and then it goes away again. I thought, oh, it's in summer that it stays like that yeah. real late, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like real early. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what is that? Does that awaken something primal in you? Do you feel... Like, do you feel more at Like I'm home? in my homeland? Yeah. Do you? Because here's the thing. I was back in Philadelphia for a few days, which was wonderful. And uh, it, what it was also, though, was um, fucking cold. Yeah. It was a, you know, a high of 23, 24 degrees on Thanksgiving. And here's the thing. My body was so unhappy and uncomfortable. And my mind said, well, this is right. Yeah. This is the way you're supposed to feel. There were a couple of times where I was like, I'm soft now. 
You know what I mean? Oh, like it's because totally. it, it is 42 degrees and raining there, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. But I do feel like atmospherically, environmentally, somehow, it's like where I'm suited to. <laughs> right. Like a couple of like ailments that I feel like I have here are not there, like in the the colder climbs. Like like sun based. I don't know. Like I'm just like my skin's dry. You know what I mean? My throat's always dry. Like it wasn't like that in England. You felt you felt at home. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it also because you could finally just unleash the bodyguard takes and everyone would be like, <laughs> so top. This has happened to me before when Aces. I've gone to England, where I've like buttonholed a cousin. And just be like, what did you think of series two of this show? <laughs> of, of, you know, like, broad church. Because you assume and everyone like, there is it, walking around wearing hats and peaky blinders, just <laughs> ready to talk pole dark. Yeah, they have t-shirts on that say, ask me about Carrie Mulligan's performance in Collateral. <laughs> yes, yes. No. Uh, so TV is not as central to the experience of the people you hang out with I there as it is I think there are people who love TV over there. But I mean, they, they you're... Like, crew there is like family. Yes. It's not a hyper media. You know what the other thing in England though is they have to fucking pay for every channel like crazy. Like you have to get like a sky license. What is like is that like isn't off licenses where you no, buy No, no, but beer, like when you're right? getting like your BB you get like I don't think that you can just plug a TV in and get it. You know what I mean? You got to like can't do, do that here either. What, what are you, <laughs> you trying to get like Jerry Penicoli on WCAU? Like what what is your home setup right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just, we pay for cable and then we get it. You know what I mean? But like there, it's like you have to like pay for these. It's it's hard to explain. Capitalism in America is But when so I was easy. like, I would ask about like, oh, did you watch this show? They're like, well, we don't, we don't get that channel. We don't do that. Here. Yeah. And there's only like six channels. So I don't even know what the big deal is. I feel is. like they should get them. My favorite thing still is that when you're watching BBC, at the end of like whatever show it's on, this woman comes on <laughs> and she's just like, now on BBC One. Mm-hmm. No matter what she's talking about, it's in the same voice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, now on BBC One, Theresa May tries to passionately make the case for a unified Europe, while on BBC Two, the Great British Bake Off. And it's like, it's always, there's no like, and then Top Gear! It's, hey. like, yeah. it's, it's like all at that same tone. Can I ask you a really specific thing about British television that will be of interest to few? It's a good question because we're talking about the little drummer girl. Next. Oh, right, that's yeah. British. Okay, good. So it's kind of uh, a natural setup. Do shows still start at like ten oh five GMT? <laughs> yes, yes, because they do a little. They do a little apparent, you know, appetizer before that. What, so you get like a little granita, <laughs> so to speak. That's right. Of like <laughs> the world a, is ending and Brexit is not on schedule. On the shipping report, lanes into Southampton are clear and cloudy. On the shipping schedule tonight. <laughs> Coming up next, a man looking into the camera. <laughs> like so, this just handed to me. So no, we've left Europe. <laughs> <laughs> just handed to me again. Not quite yet. Yeah. So no. Uh, yeah. So not a lot. There was not a lot of takers for my bodyguard conversation starters. Con- conversely, mm-hmm. were people just like hype AF on uh, the Good Doctor? No, they, I, there was. I didn't see. You know, I, I don't see a lot of American series making a huge impact there right at the moment. American serieses. Yeah. So I don't know if you, this is not going to completely land for you, but I was on the tube and we were going to the Tate Modern. Yeah, you are. And uh, a bunch of school kids got on and they all like had like- They were wearing little vests. They, they were actually were. They so were like sweet. all dressed up little school kids. Little, and, little drummer boys and girls. <laughs> and, and they sit down next to me and I'm just like, oh, these kids look adorable. You know, the mm. English, they just really, they know how to raise their kids, you know? Yeah. And one turns to the other and goes, you know what, blood? If I sit down in that front row and teacher asks me about economics, I'm like, I'm well chuffed about that, blood. That's so, first of all, A, so good. <laughs> B, it's an amazing imitation of Yann Demange, who briefly was attached to direct the pilot of Briar Patch. 
<laughs> All right, and go. That's great. Yeah. So it was just like really loud talking about how they were were gonna have to take their their sixth form physics tests, but they weren't like excited about it or something. I don't want to segue yet into talking about the television show we have to talk about, <laughs> but I, I am going to bring it up. And I'm going to bring it up slowly because, I mean, yes, um, there were a number of important movies released over the last weekend that I did not see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can't talk so about We can't them. talk about Widows. We Sorry. can't talk about The Favorite. can't talk about Creed 2. can't talk about Ralph Breaks the Internet. Nope. Because I know you were pretty, pretty hype on that. I won't that. be talking about that ever. I, me either. Someone asked me if I was going to take my children to that. <laughs> I was like, my children, if I do my job right, they will never know about that. <laughs> Same children, by the way, who are the reason why I've not seen a movie this weekend. Um, no, I just wanted to ask specifically about— That would be amazing if you like looked at your children and you were just like, I want to tell you something. You have robbed me of cinema, and I will rob you of your cinema. They're waking up at 4.55 a.m., so yeah. there are a lot bigger things that they've robbed me of, like my clarity of mind and purpose yeah. at this moment. But so again, and I think people— especially people who are listening abroad, will enjoy Chris's role as foreign correspondent (laughs) after his six days uh, over the pond. But we're watching Little Drummer Girl. You and I love it. Um, Meaning you and your... We are, but I mean, you you and I collectively, my wife and I are watching it as well. We're big fans of it. And one of the things about it that I love so much is that it is lavish. It, It looks so beautiful and considered. And then AMC... Burned all six hours and three nights. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about the first half of it in case people haven't fully caught yeah, up. We'll, so we'll touch like, on it again yeah, on we're Thursday. We're doing this on Monday. It came out a week ago. Like You can probably get to the rest of it. Yeah. But I guess I'm wondering about its role in the firmament in two countries because AMC is a major channel over here. But I believe the story behind this is that it's a co-production mm-hmm. it with BBC, which made me feel like, well, that's probably where a good portion of the money came from. Because otherwise, if AMC spent a ton on it, would they be burning it on three nights? Do you think that's an accurate representation of this show's place in the British cultural firmament or, in general, BBC's commitment to production? Because they're certainly making a lot of shows, much like the, our channels and streamers Well, BBC here drama, I mean, like, obviously with things like Sherlock, Bodyguard, Broadchurch, uh, you know, these shows are within the context of, like, the size of the country, blockbusters. You know, right. I think that Bodyguard's finale, they they said, was, like, shattering records of viewership Bodyguard in the way that it was, like, maybe not, like, MASH, but it sounds like... Well, it, was, it wasn't like MASH in the numbers, but it was, like, MASH in the sense that it's a kind of number, collectively, that people in this country dream about retrieving. Yes, yeah, right. And I think that, um, I mean, I had, I met some people over there, cousins of mine and others that were just talking about how they just have Netflix, you know, so so that generationally, that's like what's happening. But here. they, I think, the people who were saying something like that were a little bit more like. First of all, all of them just watch Friends. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or have watched Friends already like once or twice through. That's still the most popular show in the world, right? And that they just put it on when they get home while they're making dinner. Yeah. Um, which is exactly how we were. You know, fifteen years ago, when you would get back from work or you'd get back from school or whatever, you just Red throw Dwarf on Seinfeld or. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or meet the vicar or whatever else is popular right. at that time. Wallabies, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think that what AMC did, I think their version of it was we were trying to create an event, mm-hmm. which is which is understandable. And I think that we'll see that a little bit from FX next year when they do Shogun. And I'll be oh, curious yeah. to see how these shows start getting released because I don't think that it's really working right now. Uh, for the binge model, I don't think is working for people being able to talk about the show, you know? Yes, and I also wonder if it's working financially because I don't. we don't know the numbers in terms of AMC's commitment to Little Drummer Girl. They had, I think they had some success, clearly enough to continue their relationship with the Le Carre estate mm-hmm. um, with uh, uh, last year's Night Manager. But 
I don't. It seems like they made a, a they they made a, a consideration here that running this out over six weeks of airtime did not make sense for them. However, running it in three nights, making an event out of it, and then adding it to their collection made sense. Mm-hmm. And to that point, AMC is doing something that we should probably we should probably have someone both with a more international perspective, but also someone with a, with a different view of the business on to sort of help us through some of this. Because I only recently noticed that AMC is trying to split the difference with uh, between the streamers and between the prestige cable channels and its own identity as basic cable by offering this like elevated platform, right? So I can get the AMC app on my Apple TV mm-hmm. and I can watch shows on demand on it, but they're with commercials. If I pay four ninety nine a month, I not only can watch the shows without commercials, but I could have watched all of Little Drummer Girl the first night had I so chosen. And I think that's a sign of them trying to have it both ways and get the value like a Netflix of having something in their collection but also trying to get the burn, the exciting burn of people just lining up and watching it in three straight nights. And I don't, I don't know, know where that goes I don't because know where that goes. I just I don't know how much stuff they have in their vault. Aside, you know, they have Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and Walking Dead. So obviously, that's like a spinal cord for like people coming back to that stuff. Worth noting, I don't know what the perpetuity deals are here, yeah. but they actually don't have because that's a Netflix, right? Well, I think yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad is a Sony show. Mad Men is a Lionsgate show. I haven't looked at the AMC app to see if those shows are available because I think they are, in fact, on. I think they're Netflix. Uh-huh. So they, they have Walking Dead, basically, right. is what they have. And maybe Remember When, their show from the late 90s. It's a weird place to be. That's a, that, For me personally, as yeah. somebody who's very aggressive about how much television he's watching, that's actually, that's five bucks too far. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have I five bucks a month or however much it is for every single individual channel. Yeah, I just don't. Last point. If I do do that, I have to cut the cord eventually. And I can't cut the cord because of, for right now, for live sports. So um, the other half of the question that I'm asking, again, this is the big industry perspective question, is one thing that's been fun to see over the last few years as television has grown has been the how international television production has risen in concert with American television production. And we're getting all these interesting shows and we're not just getting remakes of them. We're getting the shows pretty close to day and date to when they're, when they're on mm-hmm. other, other channels, whether it was the, was it the return? The French show was an example of a couple of yeah, years yeah. ago that we really dug. And I'm a huge fan of Deutschland 83 and Deutschland 86. Um, but it, you know, which is a, which is a difference from even a few years ago when, for example, Homeland was an Israeli original show that was just adapted and changed. We never saw the original, or at yeah. least not at the same time. One thing that's been happening, just like it's been happening here, is Netflix is eating, ev- is drinking everybody's milkshake around because international the world. day and date releases. Not just that; they're just making the shows themselves. Sure. So whatever production houses or channels were willing to invest, like whether it was the BBC or Rai or Telemundo or whatever around the world, were going to invest and try to turn themselves mm-hmm. into— Canal Plus, yeah. And, right, and become an HBO or become a destination or become a major hub for local native language production. Netflix is like, well, we'll just make dark. In every country that Netflix exists, they have their version of dark where they're saying we're making the original shows in this country sure. too, which is great for us to be able to watch them here. But I don't know what the trickle down effect is with a, with a, because here HBO and AT and T they're like well or Apple we can trade punches with Netflix for a while. Those smaller channels or national channels I don't know if they can do that. And so the I mean look the Roy family can help us sort through this <laughs> because right. they probably have a stake in a lot of that's these. right. But it's interesting. All right, so we're going to talk about the first three episodes of the Little Drummer Girl. Before we do that, do you want to recommend any of those movies I haven't seen yet? I mean, Widows is phenomenal. I really want to see Widows. Widows is Widows makes me feel like we've like fucked something up. Because it's like 
He's Steve McQueen is so good at making that movie. Yeah. And that movie winds up being so much more thoughtful than it has it not that it has any business being, but it just shows that if you make an approach to genre material quote unquote genre material, yeah, that's sincere and thoughtful, you can actually do as much of as much, if not more, than any drama. Because there's so many different stories to tell within the genre mm-hmm. uh filmmaking. And you have that built in like the floor of entertainment is so much more higher. So it winds up, you can watch it for as a heist movie. You can watch it as kind of like, let's get the gang together movie. But there's a whole other plot line about Chicago politics. And there's a whole plot line about race. It's just like, it's, it's just a fascinating movie. And also like just absolutely gripping. It's exciting. I am, I am, I want our listeners to know, I'm going to see some movies, man. It's screener season. <laughs> I hope. This is my favorite time of year because then you're just you're gonna be like, so I've <laughs> I finally saw Black Panther, and let me say, <laughs> let me clear the lane for me a little bit. Let me clear my throat. Um, yeah, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little little drummer girl, right? Yeah. Well, we'll talk about the first three episodes. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and talk about the first three episodes of Little Drummer Girl. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Night Flyers. From the mind of acclaimed author George R.R. R. Martin comes sci-fi's terrifying new series, Night Flyers, a psychological thriller set in the year 2093 that follows a team of scientists aboard the most advanced ship ever built. Their mission not only takes them to the edge of space, but to the edge of insanity as they realize true horror isn't waiting for them out there. It's already on their ship. Each episode of Night Flyers will be available across all sci-fi platforms for an epic two-week premiere event. Yes, you will be able to watch the whole season anytime, anywhere. Unlike anything you've seen before, Night Flyers combines horror and science fiction in a way that George R.R. Martin himself has described as Psycho in Space, starring Owen Mackin, Jodie Turner-Smith, David Ajala, and Gretchen Maul. No one is safe in sci-fi's terrifying original series, Night Flyers, all episodes, all platforms, starting December 2nd on Sci-Fi. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat, or even worry-free getaway service, which lets you arm your system and lock up and set lighting schedules for when you go on vacation. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system. Beam is incredible. It is so easy to hook up. It's so easy to use. It's so great at bringing sports to life in your living room or just making the movie experience come into your home. I mean, isn't that what you want? We're, We're getting so much content beamed into our homes anyway. Why not use the Sonos Beam to make it sound better? Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to TV, podcasts, and more. You can use AirPlay to enjoy sound from your iPhone or iPad on Beam. All it takes is one cord to connect the Beam to the TV. The Sonos app walks you through setup step by step, and it syncs with your existing remote. Or you can get a hands-free control by using Alexa, which is built in. That way you can start a playlist, skip tracks, and pause simply 
just by asking out loud. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S.com. All right, we're back. Uh, let's talk about the first three episodes of Little Drummer Girl. Three of six. Yeah. Which, by the way, might be confusing for people who did keep up because it's, th- it's, this was aired as three two-hour Yeah, we're talking episodes. about the first night and a half. But if you're watching it in any kind of streaming service way, if you're buying it off of iTunes or uh, oh, it's, Amazon. It's, it's chopped up. It's all there. All right. Yeah, it's chopped up. Uh, this is like, it's recency bias, but it's like really jumbled up my top ten. Yeah. I kind of can't deal with how much I love this show. I know. It's so good. And it's a show that wants you to love it because it's so deeply realized and it's kind of just really romantic. You know what I mean? And it's the music is beautiful. It's like inviting you in to this warm bath of a world that is actually quite dangerous and quite scary. And I think that the we will talk about it, but the second half of the of the series gets a lot more chilling. But sort of languidly rolling through uh, Greece and Yugoslavia in the, in the late 70s and these just loading up on Slivovitz bold colors as as they like uh, Florence Pugh to wear on, on the show it, it just is a show that invites a connection I think can we talk about I agree and I feel deeply connected to the show and very excited by it when you talk about being shaken the year end list being shaken up I agree because recency bias I am full of joy that the show is out there and I still have a little bit more to watch. I think it is so vibrant, so exciting, so deeply realized and affecting and thrilling to watch that it is crashing through the numbers on my top 10 list just because I feel so positive about it. I had so much fun watching it and so you know I have so much anticipation about watching more. What I'd like you to do, Chris, because mm-hmm. people who listen to this podcast know how we feel about crime fiction. They probably know how we feel about John le Carre. Yeah. And they probably also know that though he has been uh, a recognized master of the form and just one of the great living novelists for and recognized as such for a number of decades, the adaptations of his work have picked up in recent years because his sons are now controlling yeah. the franchise. The sons, and they've yeah. made it, they've made various deals. And so we get projects like the new Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie, which I loved, and The Night Manager, which I was okay with. Here we have them tackling and succeeding with what, I believe, and I have not read this book, is considered one of his masterpieces, but also one of the naughtiest and most cerebral of his books. Yeah, paradoxically, it's one of his most complicated books, and it's also the, I think it was at the time when it was released, easily it's his biggest commercial success. So this is a 1983 book yeah. set in 1979. And it has a sort of famous mass paperback edition from that era that's like, I think you would see, it wasn't as popular, but like it was a very, very... It was not uncommon to see that in Jaws, you know, it's at different people's houses as like those those mass paperback. Yeah, beach I remember read books. the cover. Yeah, even though I never. And read it was the book made into a film with Diane Keaton, very unsuccessfully by George Roy Hill. Um, and I think that that was kind of a, you know, nobody remembers that movie. I wouldn't recommend anybody going back to it. So what are the pitfalls here? Well, okay. So when Night Manager came out, I was pretty convinced obviously they're just going to keep they have so many stories they can work from from here they haven't even really re- rebooted the smiley stuff which is what tinker taylor soldier spy honorable schoolboy and uh smiley's people is about and not just not just the fact that there's a number of books which suggests in a tv series based on those alone mm-hmm. so more than one series or more than one season but you could do the continuing adventures he smiley. shows up I mean, in a lot of books afterwards too he shows up in in other uh in, in, in other books in minor and major yeah. ways. You could do a smiley TV show. Sure. In a traditional yeah. sense. And they I have mean, not they done did, that yet. I thought Thomas Alfredson's version of the, of the book 
was quite stylish, and I so thought there good. were a bunch of people who were very good in it. Oldman. But then there is there is the other sect of the, you know there's another part of the church where everybody is like the BBC version from the seven. From this is our pal Zach Barron. Yeah. Well, the Alec Guinness BBC version is he feels the way. one true text, and it's the only good Le Carre adaptation because it's ever been it is made. as complicated as the writing itself. It's very faithful. It's very faithful, and it, I think because it was set closer to the time of the events, maybe it had like a certain period feel that doesn't feel as fussy as maybe the, mm-hmm. the new version does. But anyway, after Night Manager, I was pretty content with the idea that they're going to make these into stylish thrillers. They're going to make everybody look good. Everybody's going to be tan. Everybody's going to be healthy. Everybody is going to... Yeah. It, it, the idea of Tom Hiddleston as the main character in The Night Manager is not exactly like... I wouldn't say it's a it's a disgrace or anything, but it, it it's just not what you think of somebody that beautiful and that sort of elegant it, as the, as the hero of, of, of a Le Carre novel. It's also what you would think of and maybe what you would fear when you hear that a great author's, uh, younger young sons are hustling the stuff in Hollywood. Yeah. Like I, let's get our let's find let's ease people into our dad's work. Yeah, and maybe we can create a thinking man's bond out of this stuff. You know, you basically have a series of really well plotted novels with some good dialogue and some good twists. But what makes LeCarry special to me, aside from the fact that I love living in that world and I'm so fascinated by the world of espionage, is the interiority of the characters. And he writes about memory and feeling in a way that is is kind of unique to him, although I think it draws on a lot of, whether it's you know anybody from Henry James to anything else, where you'll be living inside of somebody's mind as they're processing these very genre events. Mm-hmm. You're also going back through time with them to them thinking about their father or them thinking about a loved one that they lost or them thinking about a, a woman that they were almost going to marry but didn't. And somehow those threads of their life come together to have resonance in this sort of spy stories somehow. Mm-hmm. It impacts their decision-making. It maybe checks their their reactions to things. It has something to do with all these different elements of the story. And you, it's very hard to represent that interiority on screen. And I, I think that when you watch uh, The Little Drummer Girl, when you watch Park Chan-wook's adaptation, the first thing you feel is that this was a group of people who made the show who took LeCarrie as the diving board and jumped into a pool. And that's that's a line that actually cu- comes comes up a couple times yeah. in the show. But they took it and made it their own in a way that still honors what made LeCarrie special. But you can't show interiority unless you have voiceover. So what he does is he lets the camera show it. He lets the camera wander and dive and reveal what's happening on these actors' faces so that you can fill in the interiority for them. I completely agree with all that, and I would take it a a step further, which is to say all the things that maybe made Little Drummer Girl appear challenging for an adaptation are actually what they've embraced here and have made it good, which is to say that it is at its heart about performance. It is about um, the the theater, Mm -hmm. as you said in the intro. It is about the theater of geopolitical discord, of about espionage, of about the, the... disturbing commonality between the, um, I don't want to say narcissism, but the extroversion, let's say, of acting and of being an assassin or of playing a part. They're all playing a part. And whether you seek out the part by auditioning or the part is granted to you by events on the world stage, there are people who take the opportunity and there are people who shrink from that spotlight. And 
this is a series about very different people and uh, relatively, I don't even want to say broken people because that's a cliche of contemporary television. I would just say unique people uh, who all have answered that call. And they've ended up on different sides of the stage, perhaps. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because it's interesting that you say that whether or not they're broken and this fixes them or not. Because yeah. I, I think one of the things that, that seems really— seems reductive to me. But it also something that it really captures probably about that 1970s period leading up into— the, and, and that late Cold War period is the way in which world events did suck everybody in. Right, you couldn't, that, stay, you couldn't be on the sidelines. There's lines. a scene in the, in the first episode, I think, where Charlie is in a bar with her theater troupe in England, mm. and she gets excited because they've been offered this Greek vacation by an, like a patron. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, that guy, Al, who's sort of a, you know, her boyfriend, but is like kind of on the outside and is, is much more of a Marxist, is sort of like, you know, there are explosions going off, and you're excited about your like, piss-up in, in Greece. And, yeah. and she's just like, you're only mad because... Because you're not invited, and then she winds up inviting him. But that idea that essentially what you read in the news wasn't compartmentalized, but was actually in front of you all the time and was governing what your your everyday life was, I think is something that really resonates today too. Yes. But in a different way, because I feel like the theater that that those people were living in was this was the entire stage for this this conflict. You know. Yes, and of course. What it brings to mind is the fact that, you know, when you think about World War II, they're like, well, the Pacific Theater. We use that word to talk about war, and it's just as it is then, just as it was during 1979 when the story is being told, as it is now. If you move your avatar a few clicks or a few hundred miles or a thousand miles the east or west or north or south, you can be in a theater like that too. Sure. And um, how— culpable are we for those events? Have we bought tickets? Um, are we responsible for what happens on stage? I mean, these are the things that are happening. These are, these are the ideas that swirl around the show, and the show wisely embraces them. But all of this is very, you know, we're having a, a heady conversation about something that is just fucking ripping. And yes. a lot of that has to do with the performances, which we should talk about. But first and foremost, we should talk about Park Chan-wook, who is, um, you know, people who go to the movies will tell you is a legendary and brilliant figure. Um, I am deeply in love with him now mm-hmm. watching this uh, because it is astonishing. He's probably best known for Old Boy. Old Boy. Um, didn't he do like Sympathy for Lady Vengeance? Sympathy for Missy Vengeance, Miss- yeah. 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 There, Which is one of like my, one of my favorite movies. It's just a remarkable movie. There's so much control here. Sometimes when we talk about things being controlled by a director, it can feel like it's choking the life out of it. But instead, it just feels like the most deliberate, and vibrant canvas you can imagine. I am. I said this last week when we were previewing it. I'll say it again. Like I am newly uh, in love with and obsessed with production design. Now that I understand how hard it is, when we made Briar Patch, it didn't occur to me because you never have to think about how every detail. I mean, of course, every detail matters. And in any art, when people consider every detail, that sorry, is, it is actually sympathy for Lady Vengeance. There is there's there's better art. Sympathy for Lady Dynamite was a blog post I read <laughs> last year after the show was canceled, um, and. But there, when I found myself in Albuquerque, like designing matchbooks for a hotel that we would never see, mm-hmm. writing newspaper articles for newspapers that would flash in the background that we would never see, I began to appreciate just the kind of mind that that can not just not just imagine a completely other world, but then fucking make it happen. And this show looks like no other show. It is this the color palette 
the architecture, the locations, even the weather that they stumbled into or took advantage of in every scene is as much a character as Michael Shannon is, and it is gorgeous to look at. It's really an astonishing achievement. The only thing that I think has come close this year is Patrick Melrose, and that's purely in terms of like aesthetics. The visuals, yeah. Visuals, um, production design, because I think that show tapered off, but I'm blown away by it. Yeah, I mean, he draws from everything from, I think there's uh, elements of Hitchcock, obviously, in the in some of the uh, psychological thriller aspects. I think that there's a there are shades of David Lynch in this. Um, yeah, when you least expect it. And yeah. there's a mastery of the surreality that when he allows that to come in and what you think is otherwise a straightforward period spy story. Right, because there's a moment in, the I th- believe, the second episode when she's sort of, quote-unquote, gotten the part. And I want to talk a little bit about the second episode specifically, but there's a shot where it's kind of, and you can see this in the trailer, it kind of tracks into Alexander Skarsgård standing with his arms out like a, in a crucifix kind of pose. And it goes in, and as it, it dissolves, mm-hmm. it sees the actual person that Alexander Skarsgård is going to pretend to be in their fiction. The, the real Salim. The real Salim in a in a padded cell somewhere in Munich. Um, you know, the first episode, I think one of the things that I think is worth mentioning about this is just how disorienting it is and how it's, confident they yeah. tell the story, but in in the sense of, I, I've, I've watched it one, the first few episodes once and then I watched them again with my wife. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she, I did that too. She was like, I'm sure I'll get it, but what's going on with this? You know, and I think that I've read the book, so it was a little bit familiar to me, but even the way in which, before you know it, they've kind of enacted this plan. Michael Shannon has kind of sold his, his oh, yeah. Mossad betters that on this plan. You're just kind of like, wait, what's he going to try and do? Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, and you've got Alexander Skarsgård showing up, and you're not really sure, like, well, how did he find them? And what, mm-hmm. what's he just going to hang around them and then kind of in, entice her, but also offend mm-hmm. her and then kidnap her? All that stuff, you just kind of have to go with it. And because you're making those plans in your head, you're like, I guess I just have to go along with this. You're kind of thinking like Charlie is. Yes. And what you are uh, giving yourself, I mean, this is this is pretty fucking grandiose, but go with me here. What, one of the joys of the series, if you go along with it, is just losing yourself in a story that you, you get, you, you buy a ticket, you take the ride. Right, So you give yourself over to it. And that really is what's happening to our character too, right? I mean, she, Charlie, brilliantly played by Florence Pugh, is being radicalized, essentially. Now, by the quote-unquote good guys, I guess, mm-hmm. fulfilling, is she, having, is she having itches scratched that had pre-existed this situation? Probably. But she is being changed and her vision of herself and her vision of reality and what she's willing to accept is being altered in really deep psychological kind of fucked up ways. That's happening to us too. Yeah. And you kind of, and that's kind of what it is to engage with someone else's vision in TV or movies or whatever. You kind of have to sacrifice a little bit. Maybe not when you're watching Friends while you're cooking dinner. But to give yourself over to something challenging or something with intention and purpose is not unlike that relationship. You're just saying, well, okay, I guess that they have, we're, we're going to throw out your own compass and accept theirs. And it can be disorienting, yes. And, you know, we've talked to people who are enjoying the series and couldn't tell you what's going on after one episode or after sure. two episodes. Yeah. yeah, I love that it kind of doesn't matter. I will say that because my wife got mad at me and insisted I rewatch the first <laughs> two, Yeah, I have a much firmer grasp on everything yes. and could appreciate it, it, more. It, it, I actually think in a strange way, I hate rewatching TV. Yes. This actually does support rewatching. Yeah. There's little lines of dialogue that come across and there's also you can kind of see the pieces coming together in little ways that you may have not noticed because you were distracted by a phone that looks so cool or by an outfit mm-hmm. that looks so amazing. You're like, "Oh, so she says this and then it's like she's part of this. I got it." And so I want to say take a moment here to say that 
do we owe Michael Shannon an apology? Because he absolutely is one of our best actors. But we, again, I'm, we're all culpable here, right? Like Just like for geopolitical conflict, we're culpable in this too. We have definitely only supported him in these sort of bug-eyed, extreme weirdo roles that gained him some measure of fame. Mm -hmm. The straight line from the movie Bug that he was in to his role in Boardwalk Empire to his role in the trashy Superman movie, all that. Like, that's the version of Michael Shannon that we, as American consumers, seem comfortable with. Yeah. Thank God they gave him a different thing to do. And no wonder he took this part. And it's much different. I think his rendering of this character is different than what most people's imagination of Kurtz would be who read the book. Yeah. Put this mustache on and put those glasses, put that hair, um, put that accent. I've heard some mixed reviews about his Israeli accent. Oh, look, I said this last (laughs) week. Like, you're, again, you're either, you've bought the ticket or you haven't. Yeah. It doesn't bother me anymore because he is a unique creation. If you start pulling that thread... The whole thing unravels. Yeah. Why are all the Israelis only talking English to each other? Why are the Why are the Germans and the Israelis talking English to each other? I mean, why does any of that matter? Right. His performance is it's it's a very unique performance. It's of a very interesting character, and what I love most about it is the gusto, not just of the way he's embracing this part, but of the way this guy Kurtz interacts with the world. Yes, a world that has hurt him ex- very deeply. Yes, you know. Um, but allows Michael Shannon to play that exuberance, to play that ferocity of action as a honestly earned consequence of what happened to him at the beginning of his life. Mm-hmm. It's not a stereotypical, a broken person trying to be fixed no. at all, no. which thank God, and I appreciate that, and he's just a joy to watch. So much of this show is about perception. Uh, I mean, it's not only about perception in terms of how much our visceral reactions to the to what we're watching or being manipulated by the director. But it's also about perception of conflict and how two sides can think they're absolutely right and the other side can think they're absolutely wrong. And it's also about our perception of reality because it's about creating a fiction to impact nonfiction. You know what I mean? It's about creating a piece of theater in the real world that will actually change the world the off world. the stage. Yeah, Which right. is kind of what any artist dreams they're capable of. Yes. Even if they won't And that's what it. Michael, Sh- I mean, and Kurtz insists, I'm like when he talks to his boss, he's like, you know, I'm an artist. You know, like. Kurtz is an interesting character name as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously some intention behind that. Yeah, of course. And uh, I just love that, how, I love how the, the arc of his first two episodes kind of culminates in that, in that Damon on the second episode where they break her essentially, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's it's that's an interesting scene to watch because it's such a complicated. That's the most complicated part of this show yeah, so far. There's a there's a, there's this whole element where Florence Pugh, who I mean, we could talk about probably for another hour, but where, how does England keep making brilliant actors like this? Yeah, but y- you should find that out next time you go. <laughs> um, where Florence Pugh, even though she is essentially being interrogated by secret Israeli agents, she is is still t- sticking to her own legend, to her own fiction. Of her mm-hmm. father being a con man who uh, died in prison, mm-hmm. uh, which that actual legend is the story of John le Carre's real life and is the story that he then told uh, in A Perfect Spy. You're right. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The story of Charlie in Little Drummer Girl was inspired by John le Carre's sister, Charlotte, who was an actress who worked, who, who flirted with sort of far left 
actor circles, including with like the Redgrave sisters right. in the 70s, who were really big workers' rights party people. You know? Right, and of course, there's that line at the end of the third hour where um, Skarsgård and Florence Pugh, um, Gotti and Charlie are talking. And by the way, how great is the show that she has three names for him? Yeah, Joseph, and Peter, and Gotti, yeah. Jose. Jose, yeah. Um, that he says, you know, some people have the taste for it and mm-hmm. some don't. And this is a through line in Lacare's life because he was involved in, in the spy trade and then was a writer. And clearly there is some there is some commonality that he's always been trying to exercise in himself, right? Of what 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 kind of being drawn to uh, fiction or grand fiction, mm-hmm. but having some impact or footprint on the world greater than, um, you know, sketching in your own room. Like, where does where does the art go, basically? Yeah. And what effect does it have on people? And what is the best venue to deliver that art in? Um, so I think Florence I, Pugh actually has, like, one of the hardest jobs because she's got to carry the show. And Alison Herman wrote a piece that very s- smartly pointed out that the perspective of the book is largely that of the agents and the perspective of the show is largely Charlie's. It's for the most part, Charlie. Interesting, yeah. Um, she's got to convince us that this person would go along with us and that this wouldn't just be, fuck no, I am not going to join a weird secret agent team of Israelis who are trying to enact a like fishing expedition <laughs> on a Palestinian cell. You know? Let alone, like, forget the Semtex. I don't know how much you'd pay me to drive across Yugoslavia by myself. I know. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm probably out on that, dog. Yeah, and her kind of... The way that she gets it is that I think that you can just tell even from the early scenes of her in the theater, of her playing Joan of Arc, of her, you know, her her manner suggests somebody who is looking for a greater purpose in her life and looking like she's somebody who is trying to make her life matter. And LeCarrie stories are full of people like that. And they can be on the margins and they can be working in as bureaucrats or whatever, but they are people who are basically giving themselves over to this world because they want to feel like their lives matter in some significant way. The last thing I want to say about this, and we'll, we'll we'll talk more about the show, obviously, when we when we talk about the last few episodes, maybe on on Thursday's show, mm-hmm. is and this is something that I think will impact our conversation, our end of the year show that we'll, that we do every year with a certain special guest. This is what I love about TV. This is TV at its most surprising and exciting, playing in a format, in this case, with, a, with source material that I am already drawn to, bringing in world-class talent, but telling a story with the now, modern TV, with the space-time budget um, to allow it to be its best version, mm-hmm. right? Um, I also feel like this is this era we're in where this is kind of bespoke television. You know what I mean? Like this is, I hope, and we're doing a whole podcast about it. I hope some of our listeners will take this journey with us because they like this sort of thing or they're interested to the degree to which we're talking about it. Yeah. This is not, though, a needle-moving show. This is not a show that's going to come back next year. Like, you know, more the second Little Drummer Girl. This is it. Yeah. This is, this is an event that we love. Um, and this is what TV is for us now. And I, I again, I, you know, I, I, I guess I wonder about the changing nature of the medium and our conversations about it, that we're just celebrating this one thing that we love so much. It's not, I don't think everyone is going to watch this. I don't think everyone who watches it is going to love it. And I don't think this is going to start a new um, trend yeah. in television storytelling. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. But I do think that we're seeing this shift to uh, shows being as good as their directors, you know, in some ways. Yeah. And that that directors can bring something to the small screen that and they and they have the budget to play with that can rival anything on the big screen. And I know that those distinctions don't mean anything anymore. But if you're talking about Park Chan Wook, who is one of the 
great directors in world cinema over the last 20 years, he made a miniseries. Yeah. Like, that's where we're at now. You know what I mean? And, and I think that this is, we're coming out of a three or four year period of time where Fincher, Soderbergh, mm-hmm. Carrie Fukunaga, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm tons and tons of other people. And this is another uh, addition to the great television directing canon. I mean, the, every single shot here means something, earns its earns its reason for being on the screen with something about it. And it never steps on the actors where you'll have scenes like, I've often thought that there's a little bit of a restriction to the way that people can move in Fincher stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe not in Social Network, but in Mindhunter specifically, like because he's so exacting and I think that he's like, I want to move the ashtray two inches to the left. And you can kind of feel that sometimes in some of the framing he does. Sometimes I like that. You know, I like that more often than mm-hmm. I don't. There's the same kind of precision in the framing and the composition in The Little Drummer Girl, but the acting feels completely... yeah. Un- untethered I to agree. that. They don't know that they're being arranged as a piece of set design, which they essentially are. They're being these characters, and it's just awesome. It's so cool to watch. We are definitely in a different era right now in terms of things being allowed, What be, things are given the space to be what they need to be, mm-hmm. or what they best could be. There's a grand tradition of things being too short in movies, like trying to squeeze an entire book or book series into a single film. There's a tradition of taking something like the passage, a book that we loved, and turning it into this Fox show that's coming on January, which is like, that that vessel doesn't fit the stuff you're trying to pour into it. We have this new category now where we have things like Little Drummer Girl, where we have Escape at Danamora, where whether you like them or dislike them or you're interested or not interested, this fits. Yeah. This, was a, this was the right way to tell this story, whether you like it or not. And the place where those shaped stories, misshapen stories, are happening is it's television right now. Yeah. And, and that in of itself is interesting. And I still don't know if we have the exact language to describe it or the right bin to categorize it because talking about this show's success in relation to um, One Day at a Time sure. or yeah. Glow or yeah. Killing Eve, it doesn't really make sense. And yet we're doing it. Whereas when Quaron's Roma shows up in a week or two on Netflix, we're not going to pretend that that's a TV show, even though we're getting it in the same through the same device. Yeah. It's complicated, but it's You're complicated. You're seeing things that start as TV shows become movies. You're seeing things that were probably supposed to be movies become TV shows. I mean, it, like Buster Scruggs was supposed to be yes. a series. You know? it ne- well, first it was a script. Yeah. And the way they got financing was to pretend it was a TV show. And now it's back to they were like, look, fuck it, this is a movie. Yeah. It, it makes it harder for people like us to parse, but the winners are the consumers. Yeah. All right, we're going to be back on Thursday to talk about the second half of the season of, uh, of The Little Drummer Girl, and we'll have some other stuff for you. I promise we'll have other stuff, guys. <laughs> Great jobs. Happy Thanksgiving, Baranskis. Uh, well, I guess you already had it, so I hope you had a happy one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Night Flyers. This December, sci-fi's terrifying new series, Night Flyers, is a psychological thriller that takes a team of scientists to the edge of space and insanity as they realize true horror is already on their ship. Each episode of Night Flyers will be available on every platform for an epic two-week premiere event. Oh, and it's based on a novella by acclaimed author George R.R. Martin. Night Flyers, all episodes, all platforms, starting December 2nd on Sci-Fi. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you play everything you love, from music and radio to TV, movies, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. It's super simple setup. But if you don't want to bother with that, Sonos will send someone to you to set it up for you. That's right. If you live in a major metropolitan area, up and running, we'll have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. I took advantage of this. I'm no dummy. But I, I still feel like Up and Running hooked it up. It, you know, it made it so that it was absolutely maximally configured for my living room space. So I really enjoy that. You should check it out if you can. Just order from Sonos.com and select Up and Running at checkout if you qualify. 